we're starting a uh, brand new book of the Bible. We're going through the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to take probably a full year, and we're going to go verse by verse to the entire book of Luke. We've gone through Luke 1 and 2 um, before, and uh, probably even more than just just once with uh, Christmas time, but uh, this year is going to be a little bit different. We're going to keep going through the entire uh, book of Luke, and this is going to be a great, uh, a great book and hopefully a great study for us. And so Luke chapter number one, we're going to jump right into this. I want to give you a little bit of background on Luke, and then we will uh, look at the account of, of the, um, the angel coming to talk about the birth of John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner uh, to prepare the way for Jesus, for the Messiah. But Luke is writing, Luke himself is not a disciple, but Luke uh, became a follower of Christ through the influence of the disciples. Luke was a travel companion to the Apostle Paul. Uh, Luke wrote in volume more of the New Testament than any other author. He wrote the book of Luke and then the sequel book, the book of Acts. Luke wrote this and some think that the book of Hebrews was probably something that was a sermon that Paul preached that Luke wrote. We don't know that for certain, but what we do know is that Luke was this highly educated physician and he is on this commission from a high up Roman official by the name of Theophilus to investigate all of these claims of Christianity, to, to interview eyewitnesses, to, to really see if there's any validity to the claims of Christ. And Luke is, is, is on this mission and he knows he's got a, a window of time. That window is closing before the eyewitnesses are gone, before they've passed on, before they are disconnected with those who have seen the accounts of Christ firsthand. And so Luke is going to gather documents. He's going to interview eyewitnesses. He's going to compile all of these things together. And that is what we are going to study and look at in the book of Luke. I find it just, just exceptional how much how amazing it is of, of, of the amount of documents that we have of the New Testament. It's just amazing. Luke's a historian. Luke is a diligent and careful historian. In fact, there was a skeptic in the 1800s, uh, Sir Ramsey. Maybe you've heard of him or heard this, this name before. Uh, but, but he was a skeptic and he was just bound and determined to disprove the Bible, to disprove Christianity. And so he traveled to Palestine and his main mission was what he was focusing on was the book of Acts, the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And he traveled to Palestine and he was, was really trying to find evidence to be able to disprove the Bible, to try to find discrepancies in things that were claimed in the word of God, to show a contradiction, to show that, that they got it wrong. And, and, and what ended up happening was that Sir Ramsey ended up being converted to Christianity. And he said the amount of evidence for just the book of Acts was overwhelming. That his conclusion was, as a historian, as a skeptical archaeologist and historian, was that Luke 
was a, an amazing, Luke was, was, was so accurate in his writings that Ramsey actually, God used that to, for Ramsey to eventually become a believer. You've probably heard me use this statistic before, but in the book of Acts alone, there are 84 eyewitness details that are given that have been confirmed through history, through, through archaeology, and 84 just in the book of Acts. Now, that doesn't mean that, well, therefore, the Bible is true. But it is significant. And what it does tell us is this, that the Bible is historically accurate. Now, I believe there are many good reasons to believe that the Bible is true, that the Bible is God's word. I think that is just one piece in the many other pieces of the puzzle. But what it tells us is this, that the New Testament documents are accurate, that they're written with historical accuracy. And so Luke here is on this commission from Theophilus. Now, Theophilus means lover of God. So we don't know exactly much about Theophilus. We don't know exactly why Theophilus is having Luke um, compile all these documents and, and, and interview these eyewitnesses. It could be that Theophilus is high up in the Roman government and, and Theophilus is a believer and he's wanting to gather evidence to be able to then, um, then pass that evidence on. It could be that Theophilus himself is a little bit skeptical at some of these claims and he wants to just follow the truth wherever it leads we don't know exactly what the motive behind it was but what we know is that theophilus is a high up official he's wealthy and he's bankrolling this entire operation that he has luke on to interview the eyewitnesses to gather documents to investigate the claims of christianity and and luke this very intelligent physician, and we know this for a number of reasons, but one way we, we, we know that Luke was highly educated, besides the fact that he was a doctor, was that the, the style of Greek that Luke wrote in, in both, in both Luke and Acts, was the style was, shows us that he was very, very educated. So Luke is a brilliant man. Theophilus is a very wealthy, high-up official, who has a lot to lose. And he's wanting to follow the truth wherever it leads. And the conclusion that Luke's going to come to is that we can have certainty that the claims of Christianity are true. And this comes after the conclusion of interviewing eyewitnesses, gathering documents, compiling all of this together. And Luke's conclusion is, not just that, well, it's probable or it's likely. No, Luke says we can have certainty. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So he's interviewing the actual eyewitnesses of these accounts. This next phrase, don't miss this because it's actually a very important phrase. It uses this phrase, ministers of the word. Now we just read that in passing and don't think much of it. But it's actually a very, very important phrase for this reason. 
what this tells us, what this phrase ministers of the word is referring to is those that would keep accurate records in the temple. And what's important to know is this, that Luke is not only interviewing eyewitnesses and following an oral tradition, though that would be compelling evidence enough. Because though for us, it's hard to imagine like being able to memorize like great portions of information and not because we're dummies. Well, maybe, but not necessarily because we're dummies. It's just, we don't have to, we don't have to in our culture. Probably the vast majority of us, we have a, a cell phone. that's really just a, it's a video camera on us 24 seven. We don't have to memorize huge portions of information. We have phones, we have cameras, we have video recorder, we have computers, we have copiers. We don't have to rely upon memory to remember things that people say. But I promise you in the, the first century, it was much different. They were actually, we know this historically, they were able to retain and memorize and remember huge portions of information. And especially when it would come to Jesus, who his disciples referred to him as rabbi or teacher. Part of their job would be to remember his sermons, remember his sayings. But Luke isn't just going off of oral tradition. This is a formal tradition where there's actually written documents. And that's important to know for this reason. Because many of the skeptics will say, they used to say that, well, you just you can't possibly know what the New Testament actually says because it was written so long after it happened. Well, that's just not accurate. I mean, any, any credible textual critic wouldn't take that position anymore because of the evidence. We have so many manuscripts, I mean, thousands of Greek manuscripts. Some of those are just little fragments. Some of them are great portions of almost the entire New Testament. But we have so many, thousands of Greek manuscripts from all over the world, from all different places, all different times, and you put them all together and what do you have? You have the New Testament. Sure, there's some differences as you would expect, but 99% of those don't impact the text in any way, shape or form. The point is this, we have a, an abundance, Dan Wallace calls it an embarrassment of riches with the amount of evidence we have of manuscripts found from the New Testament. And so the argument of, well, they're all, ch they changed it, you couldn't possibly know what it says. They can't really, someone who is serious can't really make that argument that would really hold any weight in a, in really the scholarly world. But one of, the, one of the attacks that will come is, well, sure, you guys have all these manuscripts, but how do you know those original and early manuscripts that they wrote down were accurate? I mean, because after all, what if the, they changed things? What if they just didn't get it right? Maybe not even intentionally, but I mean, even if it was only decades after it happened, I mean, who could really remember those things? And this is why it's important to realize Luke, he's not just going off of a oral tradition of what people remembered, though I think that would be very compelling in and of itself, 
knowing how they memorize great portions of information. But Luke is saying, no, I, I've actually gathered written documents. Luke probably got much of his information from Mark, who was close to the apostle Peter. Luke probably got information from Matthew, the disciple. And so Luke's saying, listen, Theophilus, I've gathered all of these things, verse number four, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Luke's saying, listen, the things, the, inter the, the witnesses I've interviewed, the documents I've gathered, I've compiled them together, and I want you to know, Theophilus, that we can have certainty of these things. I want you today, in 2023, to know we can have certainty of the claims of Christianity, that the Bible is true. And it's not just that we have historical manuscript evidence. It's so much more than that. We have the inspired, God-breathed scripture. And we can have confidence that God's word is true. And we can know that, not just from historical evidence of manuscripts, but we know that because things that were written hundreds and even thousands of years before it happened, those things happened. We can know, we can trust that the Bible that we have is true and it's accurate. That we're not here claiming that, that Christianity and the Bible is just, it's the best of a lot of different options. We're saying that it is true, that God's word is truly what is true. So this is what Luke is doing in giving us now the information that we're going to study, the information that we're going to look at. This comes from eyewitnesses. It comes from written documents. And Luke is on commission from this high up Roman official. He calls him the most excellent Theophilus. That title gives us indication that Theophilus has a position of authority, that Theophilus is high up in as a Roman official. Theophilus is the one bankrolling this. This is interesting. Luke addresses so much about the poor and, and being compassionate on the poor and the needy. And, and, and that's wonderful. We should. But also we see it's the rich guy that funds this entire operation. God uses the lowly, the poor, the, as we're going to see in Luke chapter 2, the angel appears to shepherds. They were the outcasts. They were very peculiar and odd people in society. And yet the angel comes to these lowly, humble shepherds. But we also see that God uses intelligent, highly educated people like Luke. That God uses, humanly speaking, God uses the rich guy to fund this entire operation of, of, of Luke being able to go and interview the eyewitnesses and Luke following up on leads and investigating these claims. God uses all different types and sorts of people, all different giftedness that God gives to us. So now, that's the introduction. We see now Luke's going to start out by telling us about the birth of, of John the Baptist, who is going to be that forerunner, the person to come before to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so there's going to be a birth announcement that the angel's going to give to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Verse number five, it says, there was in the days of Herod, the king of 
Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So once again, you just see, just from the, the, the historical aspect, Luke is, is mentioning names. He's mentioning places. It's almost like the New Testament writers are just daring people to go fact check us. It's almost as if they knew, okay, centuries later, you know, there's going to be skeptics that are going to that are that are going to make ridiculous claims that we can't trust this, that it's not historically reliable. Well, they've given they've given people plenty to shoot at. They've given people plenty of of of, of reasons or even opportunity to discredit it, but yet you see specific names and places are mentioned. And so he mentions that this was in the days of Herod the king of Judea. Herod was known, this Herod, he had the title, Herod the Great. And his footprint is still all over this region. Herod the Great would make these ridiculous monuments, spend a lot of taxpayers' money to build these monuments to himself. This was Herod, and, and he wasn't so great. Herod was actually evil. He was an, a narcissistic, paranoid lunatic. Like, this is just the, the historical facts. This is the same guy that was so paranoid when the, remember the wise men came to him and said, we're looking for Jesus, the king of the Jews, the Messiah. Well, Herod wanted to know where this Jesus was born. And he said, so I can come and worship him. Well, that's a lie. Herod had no intention of worshiping someone that could be a rival king. Herod had one intention, and that was to find Jesus and murder him. Well, the disciples were warned of God in a dream. So when they found Jesus, and this was not at the manger scene, this was probably um, 16 to, to maybe 24 months later, but the wise men find Jesus and then they're warned by God, they're warned by an angel to not go back and tell Herod. So they went a different route. And Herod, when he found out that they didn't come back to report to him, he was so angry and so paranoid that he ordered the murder of all of the babies. And this is why Mary and Joseph and Jesus went into Egypt for a time to get away from this murderous villain who was in power. I mean, we look at this and we think, how in the world could someone so crazy and evil get into power? But not a lot's changed today. Evil people can find their way of getting in to power. And, and Herod, so this is the first name that's mentioned. Now there's another name. This is a priest by the name of Zacharias. And it says he was of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. So this is a ministry couple. She's from the, 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 the family of Levi, think priest. And they're both ministering together. And they just have devoted their entire life. Now, the priests were, were separated into different groups. And this goes all the way back to the Old Testament where, during the time of King David. So what would happen is there would be different teams of priests that would rotate and they would minister. They would take a week, sometimes two weeks a year, and they would come to Jerusalem just so the temple would always be staffed. And there were big events, things like Passover and, and weeks like that when everybody would come just because it was such a big week for them. But we see here that 
that Zacharias, he's of the course of Abiah. So he's on this team. So there's 24 divisions. And this was the division or the team that Zacharias was on. And, and so he, would, he was just ministering. And, and as it happened, it says that, that he was now going to come and he was going to offer incense on the altar of incense. Let's look at verse 6. It says they were both, this is talking about Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. So he's saying, look, Luke's saying this was a godly couple. Now it's not saying blameless like they were perfect and never sinned. It's just a term to say, hey, they were genuine. They just loved God and they served God in sincerity. And they were just unknown for the most part until now. Just serving God faithfully. Just slugging it out day after day, being faithful, serving God. Just, look, this was a godly ministry couple. Now, this is important to know because the next verse now is going to tell us, even though they were godly, they had this pain and this heartache that they lived with for decades. It says that they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren. And it says now they were stricken in years or they were, they were past the age of where, where humanly speaking it was possible for her to even have a baby. They lived with this heartache. And we're going to see uh, next week or the following week, depending on how far we get into to Luke in these next couple weeks, where it's going to shed more light on this heartache that Elizabeth lived with. Because she desperately wanted a child. But she couldn't. And this was just the pain she lived with. So here you have this godly couple who are faithfully following God, faithfully serving God, yet they lived with a heartache and a pain. And what that tells us is this, that you can faithfully follow and serve God and there's still going to be pain and heartache in this life. You can relate to that. Right? We're not saying that none of us have been in a spot where we've, we've, we've experienced pain and suffering because of our own sin. I think we would all admit, yes, we, we've been there. Right? We've, we've had to deal with consequences of our own foolishness, our own sin. But there's also times where we deal with pain and suffering and heartache of just living in this fallen, broken world. And it's not that God's punishing you for something. It's just that we live in a fallen, broken world and that God, he has an ultimate glorious plan through even our pain and suffering. And that's what we're going to see here. But this couple, even though they faithfully served God, in fact, Luke just says this, they were blameless. Once again, it doesn't mean they were without sin. It's in the same sense of where, where uh, Paul and, and Timothy talk about as an elder or a, a pastor that they should have a reputation that they're blameless. That doesn't mean they're without sin. If, if that's what it meant, I wouldn't be up here as your pastor. Because I promise you, you don't have to look too hard to find faults and flaws in my life. But what it means is this, that there's no glaring sin and inconsistency in their life. And he's saying, look, this was a godly couple. They loved God. They gave and devoted their entire life to serve God. But yet there was this heartache. There was this pain. 
there was a sorrow. And it seemed like God wasn't answering their prayers. See, maybe for you today, you have a, something that's just a lament. It's a grief that's weighing on you heavy right now. Maybe it's a similar grief that Elizabeth had. You want children and can't have children. Or maybe for some of you, your grief is that you have lost a child. For some of you, your grief is related in a different way to your children. You have adult children that aren't walking with the Lord and following the Lord. And that breaks your heart. It's a grief. It's something that's heavy on you. Maybe your grief, your sorrow, your lament is something completely unrelated to what Elizabeth and Zacharias were facing. Maybe it's health related. Maybe it's betrayal of people close to you. Maybe it's just the struggles in this life of your life just not being what you envisioned or wanted or hoped or planned. And we're going to see the same thing with Mary and Joseph, how that God has a way of disrupting our plans. God has a way of absolutely at times just shaking things up. And we see as things are falling apart, but in reality, those things are falling into place for God's glorious plan. And that's exactly what's going to happen with Zacharias and Elizabeth. They have this heartache. And by the way, this was not only did Elizabeth want to have a child, but she, this was at this time, this was their retirement plan. Your children took care of you. Your children, when they became adults, they were the ones that would take care of you if your health failed and if you couldn't work and you couldn't sustain yourself. This was a retirement plan. And also we know that Elizabeth was looked down on. There was judging of people thought that, well, if you're not having children, it's God punishing you for something. It's got to be something in your life. But yet we see Luke says, no, this was a godly couple. And yet they dealt with this pain and this heartache. You can follow God. You can sincerely walk with God and serve God with your life. And you will not be exempt. You will not escape the pain and heartache and sorrow in your life. But yet what we're going to see is that though they saw the immediate, God saw the ultimate. That in reality, the angel's going to appear and say, your prayers have been answered. So we know this was a prayer that they prayed. And it seemed like God wasn't answering. But the reality was that God's timing was different than theirs. It says it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of people were praying without at the time of incense. So Zacharias, he's a priest and he is there at the temple. This is his time. And he got selected to burn incense on the altar of incense. This was a big deal. So this was very symbolic when they would burn incense on this altar. This was symbolic of offering up the prayers to God. This was a really big deal for the priests. This was a way that they would worship and serve God. And, and, and this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity because there were so many priests. 
You know, they had 24 different divisions, 800, somewhere between 750 and 800 priests in each division. And so if you got selected to burn incense on the altar of incense as the priest, like this was like you won the lottery. You want like this was a big deal. This was a once in a lifetime opportunity for the priest. And Zacharias gets selected. So he's going to go in and burn incense on the altar of incense. So he goes in. They, they, they selected this by casting lots. It would be equivalent of just the rolling of the die. It was a random way to select someone. Zacharias gets selected. He's going to go in. He's going to burn this incense on the altar of incense. Once again, this is very symbolic of our prayers that go up to God as a sweet savor to God. So this was a very, very important ritual, a very, very important task that Zacharias gets selected to do. So he goes in, in verse 11 it says, There appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. Now we think this fear came because Zacharias thought this was another person. He thought this was a human being, which meant that this whole ceremony and ritual would be rendered ineffective because this other human would be unclean, wasn't allowed to be in there. And so Zacharias says, once in a lifetime opportunity, and now it's going to be completely ruined because there's another person in there. It seems like this is his fear. And this would be consistent with sometimes in the Bible, angels, they don't appear necessarily right away. and You're able to tell it's an angel. Sometimes they appear in power and force and might, and other times they just appear as a person. I mean, Hebrews tells us to, to be careful as we're, as we're being hospitable towards people because he's, the, the writer of Hebrews says you could be entertaining an angel without even knowing. And so Zechariah sees this angel. He freaks out. The angel said to him, fear not. Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. Your prayer is heard. Did you know here's a great comfort for all of us? The prayers that you prayed yesterday, the prayers you prayed today, have been heard. They've been heard. You have a God. We have a God who hears our prayer. Now, God's timing very rarely is ours. Very rarely is God's timing our timing. But God has heard your prayer. And what seems like God's denial could just be God's delay. And here's the thing. If you and I knew what God knew, we would completely agree with his timing. But many times we don't see that and know that until we're able to look back on something. And then we see the hand of God in it. And then we see how God orchestrated things at the, at the right time. And as parents, you get this. When your kids ask you for something, and sometimes it's a no, sometimes it's a no right now. Because you know it's not what they need right now. You know, in fact, if they had it right now, it could be really, really harmful or bad for them. 
Well, the angel says to Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth, he said, she's going to bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. He says he's not going to drink wine or strong drink, and, and he's going to be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Now, theologians for scores of, 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 of for decades and centuries have debated on, on how this works and what does this mean, being filled from the Holy Spirit while he's still a baby. And I think the point, let's not miss the overall point. Point is that God had a specific purpose and plan for this child, a unique calling for John the Baptist, that he was going to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. Because fast forward years later, and we'll look at this weeks later, but John the Baptist is going to be a voice that is preparing people for the coming of the Messiah to, to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he said that many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go forth before him in the spirit and the power of Elias or Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and, and the disobedient to wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Saying that, that John the Baptist, this baby, he is going to come. He's not going to be Elijah, but he's coming in that spirit and the power of Elijah. This is going to be a unique birth of John the Baptist. And Zechariah said to the angel, whereby shall I know this? He's like, how can I know this? It's like, you want another sign? Like an angel appears to you in at this amazing moment of, of your burning incense on the altar of incense. Like, this is a big deal. And yet he's still, what's the sign? How am I going to know this? He's like, I'm an old man. How, how are we going to have a baby? Like, how is this even possible? And, but let's give him some grace. Like, this is pretty crazy events that are happening in his life. I mean, he's, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for him as a priest to be selected to burn incense on the altar of incense. And then he sees this person in there, finds out this is an, an, an angel. Like, this is pretty intense times. This is a pretty emotional time. So let's give him some grace. He's trying to process this. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel. That stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee glad tidings. So Zacharias is a priest. He's going to be familiar with Gabriel from the Old Testament. Gabriel, remember when we studied Daniel, Gabriel was the one that came to Daniel to give him wisdom and insight. When Daniel was having these dreams and visions and couldn't understand them, that, that Gabriel was dispatched from God to minister and to give Daniel clear understanding. And the angel Gabriel's appearing to Zacharias to announce that he and Elizabeth will have a son. And he says, behold, thou shalt be dumb and not be able to speak. He's not He's not saying dumb in an insulting way. He's just saying like in a literal way, you're not going to be able 
to speak until the day that these things will be performed. You want a sign? Here's your sign, Zacharias. You're not going to be able to speak until this happens because you didn't believe. He said, yeah, thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias and they marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. They're worried. What's going on? Zacharias, was he now holy? Did he have some, what's, I mean, did God kill him? Why is he taking so long in the temple? So when he came out, he could not speak unto them. They perceived that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And so he beckoned unto them, or he, he probably some kind of sign language was communicating with them. This would have been, I think, kind of fascinating to see how he was able to communicate with them. But he couldn't speak. And it says that, verse 23, it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Zacharias, after this, he just continued to minister. I mean... I guess what he was doing was super important, and he was just going to keep doing it. And we see that God did keep his promise. We see that Elizabeth said, the Lord dealt with me. He took away my reproach. That God answered this prayer that they had prayed probably for decades. And God's going to answer this prayer. And he's going to answer it in a way that goes way beyond what Zacharias and Elizabeth could have even imagined. We see, though, that God had heard their prayer and that God was going to show up, that God was going to give them a son. And that this son was going to be not like any ordinary son. He was going to be the one who would be the forerunner of Jesus to prepare the way for the Messiah. Maybe today you're here and you, like Elizabeth and Zacharias, have a prayer that you've prayed for years and years and years. It's a heartache. It's a pain. It's a lament that you have. And you don't understand God's timing. You don't understand why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God answer my prayer? Is it that God can't or is it that he doesn't care? I mean, if God's all powerful and God's all loving, why doesn't he do something about it? But let's not forget the other attributes of God as well. He's also all knowing. He's also all sovereign. And he knows that very rarely what we want in our timing is what's best. And we see here that God answered their prayer in a way they probably never imagined. At the time, they probably never would have guessed. God.